If it's Monday, a volatile day on Wall Street comes to a close after dual bank failures royal parts of the U.S. banking system and stir up fears of a full-blown financial crisis. Plus, President Biden tries to reassure the public that his administration will do, quote, whatever is needed to protect the economy as policymakers and Congress weigh their next move. And former President Trump campaigns in Iowa for the first time since announcing his bid for president as a legal case in Manhattan moves towards a potential criminal indictment. And welcome to Meet the Press Now. I'm Ryan Nobles in today for Kristen Welker on one of the more tumultuous days for our banking system in more than a decade. As the federal government seeks to limit the fallout from back-to-back collapses of two major banks, the second and third largest bank failures in U.S. history. After a volatile day of trading, stocks on Wall Street did end the day largely where they started. The close comes less than 24 hours after the Federal Reserve The Treasury and the FDIC announced that the government was taking emergency action to shore up the U.S. banking system, setting up an emergency lending facility, while also guaranteeing that all deposits at Silicon Valley Bank, which regulators shut down on Friday, and all deposits at Signature Bank, which failed over the weekend. Now, those actions taken together are some of the most sweeping government backstops for the U.S. banking system since the 2008 financial crisis. This morning, before the markets open, President Biden addressed the fears of a broader contagion, assuring all Americans that the nation's banking system was sound. The president says he's also prepared to take further actions if necessary. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. And their hardworking employees can breathe easier as well. Look, the bottom line is this. Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. Your deposits are safe. Let me also assure you, we will not stop at this. We'll do whatever is needed. And in a sign of continued instability, a number of regional banks sustained heavy losses in trading today, including First Republic Bank, which is even larger than Silicon Valley Bank. Its stocks plummeted by as much as 75 percent during trading. Now, the whirlwind of the last few days raises so many questions about what happens now for the U.S. economy, for the Federal Reserve, for regulators, for policymakers, for consumers. And of course, for our politics. So let's dive right in. CNBC's global markets reporter Seema Modi is at the CNBC Global Headquarters. CNBC's senior White House correspondent Kayla Tausche is here on set with me. And NBC News correspondent Jake Ward has the latest from San Francisco, as well as NBC News senior Capitol Hill reporter Sahil Kapoor on Capitol Hill. Seema, let's start with you. Now, how did these markets, and more importantly, the banks, react to the president's comments and the actions of regulators? Well, it was a volatile day on Wall Street. We started the day sharply lower. By midday, we were higher across the board to only end lower for the Dow and S&P 500, with the exception of the Nasdaq. But a very different story for the banks, which all saw their share prices turn lower as investors now try to gauge uh, whether another regional bank could be next to experience a bank run and how the onset of new regulation that President Biden alluded to could impact their growth and profitability. 
So tell me now, what, what does this mean for the, do the, what do markets think, I should say, this means for the Federal Reserve and for interest rates? Well, you know, the Federal Reserve is typically focused on jobs and inflation. That is their mandate. But with that said, the stress that we're seeing in the financial system tied to Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, uh, that is expected to be factored into this decision. It really will come down, though, to tomorrow's CPI report, the gauge we use for inflation. If it shows that inflation is still running hot, economists say it does leave the room open for another rate hike at that March 22nd meeting. Yeah, and we're probably seeing a lot of how the economy is so intertwined, Seema. So take us through the evolution of the bank collapses we saw over the weekend and what kind of ripple effect did we see after Silicon Valley Bank shut down? Well, it was an emotional weekend for many, and I think we sort of saw it play out today, despite the government backstop that was uh, unveiled overnight, as, as well as the Fed revealing that emergency lending facility, the small and mid-sized banks trading sharply lower, which does suggest the market doesn't see the government announcement being enough. And for customers in Silicon Valley Bank, uh, a sigh of relief, though clearly some concerns about the fundraising environment for startups across this nation, that is still weighing on sentiment. Mm. All right. Kate, let's turn to you now and talk a little bit about the politics of this. Uh, talk about the Biden administration's response uh, over the weekend and what's going to happen now. Well, we saw the FDIC take control of the bank on Friday. They began a frenzied search for a buyer. By Saturday afternoon, it became pretty clear that that deal was not going to materialize, or at least in time, to shore up confidence in the market. So we know that President Biden was on the phone with his top advisors, the Treasury Secretary, his NEC director, his chief of staff, throughout the weekend, and even on Saturday, spoke with the California governor to assess the situation and what needed to be done. Ultimately, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC brought this proposal to the Treasury Secretary she and the president had to green light it uh, by yesterday night, and they ended up including a signature bank, a second bank in their policies, needing to close that bank because of those very real contagion fears. Uh, and certainly they tried to shore up confidence in the market. We heard President Biden say again today that that was what he aimed to do. But as Simo was just noting, the market isn't there yet. Yeah. And, and the president, uh, I'm sure from a political perspective, trying to convince us that there's going to be no cost to taxpayers. It may be you know, when you look at it, literally, that's the case. But there could be a cost to consumers by this action by the White House, right? There could be some different impacts to consumers. If you're an employee of one of these medium to small size to, in some cases, larger startups that bank with Silicon Valley Bank, it could take a little bit longer for your paycheck to clear. Mm -hmm. If you're an investor in a 401k or in the stock market broadly, then you could see some balances lower for the foreseeable future as the market tries to digest this. And then there's the impact on interest rates. We're seeing interest rates lower today, and the Federal Reserve at its next meeting could forego another interest rate hike. Certainly for people taking out a mortgage or holding balances on their credit card, that could be positive news, although interest rates are still much higher than they were a year ago. And then, Kayla, the other thing this morning, the president said that his administration will keep the banking system safe and afloat. He said doing whatever is necessary. Uh, but as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen seemed to have a bit of a different take on this, she said there'd be no government bailouts. Define for me what a bailout is and, and how that's different from what they're talking about. Right well, perhaps now. to the American public, it's a little bit like splitting hairs. But the technicals of this, what the government is doing now, is they're using money from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve makes its own money that's not appropriated by Congress by its own investing activities. And it's essentially looking at the money it has on hand and saying, how much do we have to inject into the banking system to 
keep it afloat, to instill some of that confidence. That's where the money is coming from. It's not coming from taxpayers and it's not coming from Congress. And then there's the deposit insurance fund where about $100 billion is sitting that the FDIC has collected in bank fees. And they're going to be using that to backstop the Silicon Valley bank depositors, those companies who held cash in accounts that they're now going to be made whole for. So it is right technically that it's not coming from taxpayers, although I think the public is seeing couple hundred billion dollars right. being injected from Washington. Tell me that's not called a bailout. Right, right exactly. A, a distinction without a difference. It, you know, the other thing that I thought was struck by with what the president said this morning is that he wants Congress and regulators mm -hmm. to strengthen the rules for banks. Those are two different things, right? I mean, Congress makes the laws that the regulators then uh, implement. What exactly, what exactly could happen in that space? Well, I think there's a lot of focus on 2018 and some loosening of the post-financial crisis Dodd-Frank law. But when I talk to banking executives, the one thing that I'm hearing first and foremost is potential changes to stress tests. Uh, after the financial crisis, banks every, every year, couple times a year, they have to show the Federal Reserve everything that they're investing in, every single thing that they have uh, at their company. The Fed looks under the hood and said either you're safe or you're not safe. Banks like Silicon Valley Bank didn't have to participate in those tests in a really fulsome way. And there was also no test on interest rates. And what happens if interest rates move as high as they have recently? Because we're always fighting the last war and those stress tests really focused on what happened back in 2008. And now they're going to have to be adjusted to what's just happened in the last I, week. I know. I think we were kind of living high on these low interest rates, right? We thought they would always stay low. And then the pandemic happened and everything that happened as a result of that. Let's get back to this idea of a buyer for SVP. Mm -hmm. Is that something the FDIC is still looking for? Is that realistic? And what happens if they can't find one? Well, when I've talked to sources who are close to this situation, they say with every passing day, it becomes less and less likely that there is a buyer for Silicon Valley Bank. And to be sure, now the company has been broken into. You have the core bank, which is those customer deposits that I was just talking about, the companies and the individuals who have cash in their traditional bank accounts. But then you have other businesses like investment banking, asset management for more wealthier corporate clients. Uh, those businesses are still being run in a different sales process. That could turn out differently. But so far, we've learned that the FDIC has not been able to find a buyer for the core Silicon Valley Bank. So at some point, once those assets are returned to their customers, it will simply cease to exist. So maybe there's somebody out there looking for a bargain on a bank. <laughs> That's probably not something that I'm well, thinking. Well, if, <laughs> if a company wants a bargain on a bank, they also want a guarantee from the government exactly. that if they find something they didn't know was there, right. that the government's not going to hang them out to dry. And yeah. so far, that, that hasn't been the case. Not that simple. Caleb, amazing. Thank you for making us yeah. all a little bit smarter about this issue. Let's turn to Jake now, uh, who is out there on the West Coast. Uh, what kind of reaction are you seeing from Silicon Valley? Uh, depositor money is secure. Are things starting to calm down there right now? Well, Ryan, at this hour, you know, we've been standing in front of the Menlo Park branch of Silicon Valley Bank, and there are customers in line as they have been all day. They arrive in Ubers and uh, oftentimes emerge from the car with their laptops open, literally wearing the jackets that have the logo of the company they represent coming across. So it's literally been a parade of the people who had the greatest to lose here. Um, they do, at this hour, seem to be able to line up and apply through the FDIC personnel that are here on site for uh, 
whatever they need. They have liquidity. We've been speaking to people across uh, the tech sector, founders, uh, startup CEOs, and uh, people in charge of payroll who say, you know what, the money is moving again. But it is the ongoing reputational harm that is the problem. I was speaking to a venture capitalist earlier who uh, deals in emerging markets, and he was telling me that you know clients of his uh, who are in faraway countries that do not enjoy the same banking protections that we do are suddenly finding themselves wondering, why did I even bring my money to the United States if it was not going to be safe? Of course, those fears have been allayed, but there is this ongoing reputational worry. As one CEO put it to me, it is hard enough to run a startup. Now I suddenly have to worry about macroeconomics and where I park my money. Uh, It's something I've never really had to think about before. Yeah, let's expand on that, Jake, because as you point out, the actual physical money in the bank is secure. People who have deposits there are okay, but the bank investors are not going to be protected. And, And so much of the Silicon Valley economy is the startup economy, venture capitalists pouring money into, uh, you know, industries that are somewhat speculative. How could that impact everything, the, the, the collapse of this bank? Well, what's so interesting is that this bank is a very peculiar and particular creature. It was evolved specifically for the needs of startups. And that means that it was good at, or I guess uh, one might argue at this late date, maybe not as good as as we thought, but its skill, its its promise was in theory theory, about finding companies that could not yet show a return on investment, but would down the line, and then offering them all the banking services that a traditional bank would not give that person. And that extended all the way to, you know, giving the founder a mortgage or offering a short-term line of credit for a company that otherwise has no assets to show for itself. And being able to do that is part of what makes Silicon Valley possible, right? The big gambles that it takes to get the next Google off the ground had to do with the business model of one of something like this. But this is also a bank that in exchange for a line of credit would, re- would require, for instance, the, the company keep all of its money inside this bank. So there were some mixed incentives here that it's not entirely clear where the prudent uh, thing to do. So the question now is, can this economy here, this startup ecosystem that has been one of the greatest drivers of productivity and wealth in human history, can it adapt? Can it find the sorts of services that it came to rely on this bank for in the more traditional banks, which are absolutely going to be learning from this, that perhaps they shouldn't be taking the kinds of risks that Silicon Valley Bank did? So will the ongoing effects here, I think, are, are yet to be determined here, Ryan. Right. Jake Ward, uh, it, what could be described maybe as ground zero uh, in this crisis. Jake, thanks for that. Let's go up now the road to, to Capitol Hill where Sahil Kapoor is standing by. Sahil, give us the reaction that we're seeing from lawmakers on the Hill today. I know both the House and Senate are not in session, but is there any agreement between the lawmakers up there as to what led to this and what they could do to fix it? Ryan, there is one area of agreement between lawmakers here, and that is that there should not be a special taxpayer bailout to address this situation, at least in the 2008 uh, sense of the word. President Biden doesn't want that. Democrats certainly don't want that. And we are hearing from Republicans as well who don't want that. But beyond that, there's a lot of disagreement as to how we got here, as to what led to this situation. And as a result, what should happen next? You have some right-wing populists like Josh Hawley blaming this on wokeness and woke investments and things like clean energy and climate change. You've got uh, progressives like Elizabeth Warren saying this is a direct result of financial deregulation, specifically that 2018 law that undid major parts of the Dodd-Frank. Uh, financial regulatory uh, regime for mid-sized banks between 
50 billion and 250 billion, which by the way includes Silicon Valley Bank. And then you've got some moderates like Senator Mark Warner of Virginia. He's a Democrat who voted for that 2018 law, saying this is about mismanagement, saying it's about banking 101, and uh, that this bank in particular, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, made a big mistake in not hedging against uh, the likelihood of rising interest rates. So a lot of finger pointing, a lot of what they won't do. But Sahil, is there any new legislation in the works? I mean, it did seem like the president was kind of calling on Congress to do something this morning when he talked about strengthening the rules for banks. I mean, you and I both know there isn't a lot of room for much bipartisan progress up there. Is there any chance that we actually see a policy prescription for this? There are several new legislative efforts just today, Ryan, to uh, address this from different uh, members of Congress. There is Elizabeth Warren, as I mentioned, introducing a bill to roll back that rollback of Dodd-Frank, to basically undo that 2018 law, which he had fought vehemently against, got overruled by uh, a group of 17 Senate Democrats who partnered with Republicans to break a filibuster and eventually got signed into law by President Trump. Warren now wants to roll that back. And Katie Porter, her close ally in this space, the area of financial regulation, is introducing something of a companion bill in the House. And then there's Senator Josh Hawley, the Missouri Republican, who uh, says he's introducing a bill uh, to make sure that banks don't, don't pass any potential special assessment on to taxpayers because there is this pot of money that is funded by fees on banks that the government intends to use to protect the depositors uh, at Silicon Valley Bank that Josh Hawley says must not be uh, passed on to consumers in any form or fashion. Now, will any of these bills actually uh, you know, make it to President Biden's desk and become law? It's far from clear, Ryan. This uh, it ends up uh, becoming a question of, is this going to be a one-week story that gets resolved and prevents further damage, or does this spiral into a much worse economic situation? Right. A lot of ideas. Will they ever actually become laws. Uh, we have every right to be skeptical. Sahil Kapoor, live on Capitol Hill. We appreciate it. Coming up, what's next for the U.S. banking system and the backbone of the economy? We'll speak with a former Treasury official who helped lead the government's response to the 2008 financial crisis. That's next. Plus, former President Pence delivers his strongest rebuke yet of his former boss's actions on January 6th. But how far is Pence actually willing to go in his calls for accountability? You're watching Meet the Press now. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today. Join Hoda Kotfi for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. As we mentioned at the top of the show, President Biden has assured the public that the federal government is prepared to do whatever is needed to prevent a potential banking crisis. But Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is insisting that a bailout is not an option. During the financial crisis, um, there were um, investors um, and owners of 
systemic large banks that were bailed out and we're certainly not looking and uh, the reforms that have been put in place means that we're not going to do that again but we are concerned about depositors and are focused on uh, trying to meet their needs. And I'm joined now by senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, Aaron Klein. He's the former deputy assistant secretary of economic policy at the U.S. US Treasury Department. Uh, so, Aaron, first, your reaction to the federal actions taken this weekend to backstop customer money from banking shutdowns. Have they made the right call so far? Well, look, I, I was hoping that this morning they were going to be able to announce a purchase that they'd sold the banking business to another bank and avoid having to bail out the uninsured deposits. Uh, and that's that's what they did. Uh, Secretary Yellen was was spot on that they are not bailing out the equity holders or the debt holders in the bank, which happened, uh, unfortunately, during TARP. But there is a bailout here involving the uninsured depositors, large corporations, uh, you know, big, big tech like Roku, uh, Roadblocks, uh, 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 Circle, the big stable coin issuer. Th- those folks got a pretty big bailout this morning. Uh, and that was unfortunate, in my opinion. So expand on that a little bit, because Secretary Ellen's saying that there would be no federal bailout. You know, how well, how would you define what she's not calling a bailout versus what you think happened for some of these companies? So what she said is that they're not bailing out the equity or debt holders in the bank. Mm-hmm. And that is correct. Uh, what they are doing is bailing out the uninsured depositors that are the large corporations like 97 percent of Silicon Valley Bank were uninsured deposits. So these were big companies with lots of money, often who had other relationships with venture capitalists that could have involved different aspects of Silicon Valley Bank's financial holding company. And those folks are getting bailed out. They're getting 100 cents of their uninsured deposit back. And who's going to pay that? All of us. Mm -hmm. All of us are going to pay that in the form of higher bank fees. So she's right that one group of people aren't getting bailed out, but another are. And look, This continues. The Federal Reserve has been bailing out uh, money market mutual funds and even junk bond holders under the auspices of covid relief. So there's been a long pattern here of bailouts uh, for for big, wealthy corporations and very wealthy investors. Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like you don't think that that this is a good precedent to set. Uh, What other option did the Fed have to try and prevent uh, a mass problem here in the economic sector? So the first thing the Federal Reserve could have done is supervise this bank. The Fed regulated uh, Silicon Valley Bank from head to toe. Look, in the 2008 financial crisis with these giant banks with tons of different regulators and lots of different tentacles, the regulators all did this to each other about who is in charge. And part of what Dodd-Frank did was really put the Fed in charge. And ironically, Silicon Valley Bank was head to toe regulated by the Fed. And what in the world was the Fed doing as the supervisor and regulator of this entity over the past few years when it quadrupled in size, right, classic red flag, relied heavily on uninsured deposits, 97 percent hot money uninsured deposits who could leave far more easily. These aren't this isn't like a a regular bank and then bet heavy in interest rate uh, uh, in mortgages that they didn't hedge their interest rate risk. I'm, I'm kind of running out of red flags to put up as a warning sign. Uh, and the Federal Reserve seemed to keep giving this bank a clean bill of health. So that's the first thing they could have done differently. 
the second thing well, they can, oh, I, ahead, can I just ahead, follow Ryan. up on that though? So was the so the, was the issue here that the regulations were too lax, or that the Fed didn't do a good enough job of uh, enforcing those regulations? So the first issue is the Fed didn't do enough good job. There's in, in banking there are these two terms, regulation and supervision, and they're often used interchangeably, but they're different concepts. Regulation are the rules. Supervision is the application of those rules. The Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C. writes the regs. The Federal Reserve in San Francisco supervises the institution. And right now, fingers should be pointed at both of those entities because, number one, the supervision was clearly deeply lacking. And number two, the regulation had some issues, too. In part of this regulatory rollback that you were just describing, uh, where, the, where some numbers got changed about what banks were subject to what, uh, uh, particularly raising the threshold from 50 to $250 billion. What you saw there was the Fed said, oh, no, but we're going to maintain in this system the authority to do things for banks less than 250 Just trust us. Mm -hmm. If we see a problem, if we see a systemic institution, we're on it. <laughs> now, today, we're waking up being told, oh, oops, not only were we not on it, but this entity we didn't think was systemic, so we didn't pay that type of attention. Turns out it is, oops, sorry, America. Yeah. So as a result, does that mean we need reforms to the regulatory system? Is this just an issue uh, of trying to reform the way these regulations are enforced? You know, how do we prevent this from happening again? Right. So so look, uh, there are a couple of things. Number one, we absolutely need to hold the people accountable here, both at the bank. It was a huge failure of management and a huge failure of supervision throughout the Federal Reserve system. So that so you, people have to be held accountable. I think some of the rules have to change. The other problem is you write rules predicated on the quality of the judgment of the people who enforce them. Mm -hmm. And when the people who enforce them keep getting it wrong, maybe you need a very different set of rules. More broadly speaking, I'm very concerned about the constant precedence of bailouts. One of the things that's possibly making the system less safe today is money is being moved by corporations out of banks and into money market mutual funds. Why money market mutual funds? Well, the Federal Reserve has bailed them out uh, in 2008 and again in 2020 under COVID. While money market mutual funds were designed not to be insured by taxpayers, repeated bailouts by the Fed every time one of them has broken the buck have created an, an assumption among people that it's as safe as a bank deposit. Right. And so you have greater contagion and, and the potential for more money. So this culture of bailouts to prevent a little yes. bit of pain today, yep. or maybe a lot of pain today, right. we continue to hollow out and make ourselves less safe for the future. Okay, Aaron Klein, you, you told, gave us a lot of really good information there, sir. We appreciate it. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. And up next, President Biden heads to California to address gun violence in Monterey Park after a mass shooting killed 11 at a Lunar New Year's celebration earlier this year. California Congressman, Congresswoman Judy Chu, who represents the area, joins me next. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. President Biden has arrived in California after remarks this morning in Washington on the safety of the U.S. banking system following the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Yesterday, the FDIC and officials from the Treasury Department briefed California's congressional delegation on the bank's collapse. The upheaval comes as the president meets with the prime ministers of the U.K. and Australia in San Diego. And then tomorrow, the president will discuss gun violence prevention in Monterey Park, where 11 people were killed in a Lunar New Year mass uh, shooting in January. 
Joining me now to talk more about this is Democratic Congresswoman Judy Chu, whose district includes Monterey Park. Uh, and we'll get to that in a second, Congresswoman. But I first want to ask you about this uh, news roiling the bank industry right now. You're part of the California delegation. I'm sure uh, you have constituents that are impacted by this. You sit on the Small Business Committee. What's your reaction to the collapse of these uh, two banks and, and how the administration has responded? It's really shocking that this happened. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank was uh, the second largest bank failure uh, in history uh, ever since the 2008 Washington Mutual Bank collapse. And so um, it uh, is so important to make sure that uh, the depositors are made whole and that uh, and, and that also uh, there is no taxpayer liability, that there isn't, in fact, a bailout. So that's why yesterday I was on a Treasury briefing with members of Congress. They assured us that taxpayers would not bear the burden. And in fact, that they were going to make sure that all de the depositors were made whole. They are also going to have a liquidity fund so that they can also take care of other banks that could possibly be in the same situation. Uh, they also said that uh, the same Silicon Valley Bank was um, a regional bank catering to high-risk tech startups, and they uh, were reliant on low interest rate lending to stay in business. Uh, so uh, they were a somewhat isolated example Nonetheless, they are keeping a close eye on the other banks so that uh, we can make sure that our financial system is as strong as it can be. Is there anything else you'd like to see the administration do at this point? Or do you think this these at least these short term decisions will be enough? Well, I would like to see uh, the Dodd-Frank bill uh, reinstated to uh, what it was in it in its entirety at the beginning after the bank failures of 2008. The initial Dodd-Frank bill would have included banks like the Silicon Valley Bank. It would have subjected them to the stress tests that would ensure that the bank is whole and could withstand financial pressure. But in 2018, uh, the Trump administration lobbied to change this so that banks like Silicon Valley were actually exempted. And that's why we're in the situation that we're in now. This this. Bank must be made to be included in the Dodd-Frank reforms. Okay, let's uh, turn now to the issue of gun violence, something I know you've been uh, working on. You and Congresswoman Issue, who uh, represents Half Moon Bay, introduced a resolution honoring the lives lost in those two shootings. Why was it important to you, and how is your community healing seven weeks later? It was beyond shocking to wake up uh, during the beginning of our Lunar New Year to the fact that a gunman had gone into a dance studio shooting 11 people and wounding uh, nine others. And uh, as a result, the whole community is shattered. Uh, I have been meeting with the victims' families and uh, they are still recovering from this. Uh, the wounded are still... Uh, uh, prevent it from going back to work and, in fact, uh, really wonder about whether they can go back to work eventually. So there is so much recovery that needs to happen. And that's why President Biden's visit is so important. Uh, the whole community is still stunned and we need 
the leader of the United States to come and help in the healing process of this community, which for so many decades was considered a very peaceful community, but that peace has been shattered. And now we need to have uh, the top leader to console these folks so that we can indeed begin the process of healing. Yeah, and I understand uh, the benefit of having the president there for, for the healing process to show that he cares and he's connected to the community. But what more do you think President Biden can do to prevent an awful tragedy like this happening in the future? He's called for an assault weapons ban. That seems unrealistic in this Congress. Is there anything specific that you'd like to see the president do uh, to try and rein in this crisis we have uh, of mass shootings in the United States? Well, he has called for the assault weapons ban, and I just have to emphasize how how strongly we need it. Uh, regardless of whether it can be done today or tomorrow, we have to keep on calling for it. Look, this shooter went into the dance studio with a semi-automatic pistol, but he had a high-capacity magazine, which allowed him to shoot 42 times in a matter of minutes. That's why 11 people were killed. This was an assault weapon. And that is why uh, we have to stop this. Uh, and in fact, there have been 107 mass shootings since the beginning of the year. Enough is enough. Mm -hmm. And so President Biden's voice is very important in this, but also in many other kinds of things that we can do. For instance, um, red flag laws could have alerted us to the mental deterioration of this shooter, but I would say that many communities don't know of its existence, especially immigrant communities like this one. Mm -hmm. And so actually I'm working on a bill to make sure that there is actual outreach to all kinds of communities uh, to let them know about the red flag laws, but also that it's done in language so mm -hmm. that we can have more people reporting on these folks. All right, Congresswoman uh, Judy Chu, a busy couple of days for you with the president uh, in your district. Thank you so much for being here, we appreciate it. And after the break, former President Trump is about to address Iowa voters for the first time as 2024 president as a 2024 presidential candidate. But he also facing a potential criminal indictment in New York. We're live on the campaign trail next. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. We're turning now to the 2024 presidential campaign trail and former President Trump will be speaking to voters in Iowa tonight. This for the first time since he announced his candidacy four months ago. It comes after Florida governor and expected 2024 candidate Ron DeSantis held events of his own in the Hawkeye State on Friday. The former president's visit to Iowa comes amid his former lawyer Michael Cohen's testimony before a Manhattan grand jury this afternoon as prosecutors consider indicting Mr. Trump tied to hush money payments he made during the 2016 campaign. Now, the former president's lawyers told NBC News that he has declined an invitation to appear before the panel. The former president, of course, has denied any allegation of wrongdoing. Joining me now on the ground in Davenport, Iowa, ahead of President Trump's appearance is NBC News 2024 road warrior Vaughn Hilliard. Uh, Vaughn, Donald Trump in Iowa tonight, not for one of his mega rallies, but this is what they're calling a more focused conversation on education. A little out of the box for Donald Trump. What should we expect? Right. And all of this is happening perpendicular to these investigations and his former lawyer, as you said, Michael Cohen, literally testifying against him in front of that grand jury in Manhattan here today. This event is being marketed by the Trump campaign as a focus 
on his latest education proposal. Uh, to know, we saw something similar last year. I was actually at an event in Las Vegas where uh, they uh, promoted it, that particular event as sort of a, a, a law enforcement and criminal justice focused smaller event with a couple hundred people. And that's what they're doing here in Davenport, Iowa. But of course, this event is more than a policy uh, outlining. This is his first trip here to the caucus state. Uh, next February, it is going to be Iowa Republicans who come out to the caucus who get the first stab at selecting whether they want Donald Trump to represent them as their nominee in 2024 again. And uh, for Donald Trump, this trip comes just three days after Ron DeSantis, who did not name him by name, but made a, a clear inference to Donald Trump, suggesting that, by contrast, his Florida governor's administration isn't a place of palace intrigue and leaks. Uh, and that is where, for Donald Trump, he's uh, understanding that these investigations are going to continue to be swirling around him. He's trying to counter the likes of a DeSantis who has the ability of a legislative session ahead for him, Ryan, in which he's able to uh, pass with a Republican majority in the Florida legislature what he's going to determine to be uh, Republican legislative victories. And this is for Donald Trump an opportunity to sort of a counterpunch and try to focus in on his own policy proposals, at least in front of this uh, uh, very Trump friendly crowd. And of course, there's another 2024 potential uh, candidate out there in the form of Trump's former running mate, Mike Pence, who had some sharp words about Trump in January 6th behind closed doors over the weekend at the gridiron dinner. What can you tell us about that? And was this a case of talking to a very specific audience for the former vice president? Right. It's interesting that his uh, harshest criticism of Donald Trump in the form of verbal words uh, came in the form of a, uh, a private closed door dinner uh, with uh, uh, prominent politicians, journalists and others in Washington, D.C. off camera. Uh, Mike Pence, of course, who is still deciding whether to wade into the 2024 bid himself, said that history will hold Donald Trump accountable for the actions of January 6th. Yet, Right at this very time, Mike Pence is the one fighting the own subpoena of himself from the special counsel in the Department of Justice to go testify about the events around January 6th. So one could argue that Mike Pence could also hold Donald Trump accountable for the events around January 6th in this moment, but it's declining to do so, right? Mm, yeah, very good point, Vaughn. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Let's talk now with our panel. Joining me is Meredith McGraw, a national political correspondent for Politico. Naveen Nayak, who's a Democratic strategist and the president of the Center for American Progress Action Fund, and the former governor of North Carolina, Governor Pat McCrory. Thank you guys all for being here. Meredith, I want to read what Mike Pence said at the Gridiron Dinner. I wasn't there. I haven't gotten my invitation to the Gridiron Club yet uh, because I, it's hard to believe he said it. But let me read it. President Trump was wrong. I had no I had no right to overturn the election and his reckless words endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol that day. And I know history will hold Donald Trump accountable. I mean, he's been asked about this countless times. Our own Ali Vitale asked him about it uh, about a month ago. And he's never been this strong with this kind of denunciation of Trump's actions. What do you make of it? No, this is as pointed as Mike Pence has been so far. I was in the room. I was able to snag a ticket so you with got, you got <laughs> the info. Right, right. And, you know, the gridiron dinner, it's a lot of laughs. It's a lot of jokes. People poking fun at Democrats and Republicans. And Mike Pence was doing just that and then made the sudden pivot to really taking on Trump in really critical ways. Um, afterwards, he was swarmed by reporters, including myself. And it really seemed 
that some of the motivation for this was um, the the Tucker Carlson January 6th special. Um, mm-hmm. He mentioned that in um, his speech there at the gridiron, but he's really showing that he he's willing to take on Trump. But as Vaughn smartly pointed out, um, this was in a room with lawmakers and politicians, D.C. insiders, who I think are some of the most skeptical of a Pence run and figuring out what his lane might be for Republicans. Um, so I'm going to be curious to see if he continues the same strong um, line of attack on Trump out on the trail. You doubt he's going to lead with this in his first trip to Iowa is what you're saying. That's probably not that could be politically risky. Yeah, hey, very good. So, Naveen, if, if Mike Pence really feels this way, if he really feels <clears throat> Donald Trump should be held accountable, he has an opportunity here, right? He could be a fact witness in a number of these pending investigations, but he's actually standing in the way of a, a subpoena. Isn't there an opportunity for him to play a role in having Donald Trump be held accountable? Yeah, I think Vaughn was exactly right. And it's not just Mike Pence. This is actually... Uh, a question every Republican or an opportunity every Republican has over and over. I mean, Mitch McConnell, you know, squashed a, a bipartisan investigation into January 6th or nonpartisan commission. I think you're seeing Republicans over and over saying they don't support what Donald Trump did that day. They don't support the words. But then when it comes time for them to actually hold him accountable, they all sort of walk away and don't want to be involved in that. And it sort of shows the limits of their courage, really. Yeah, so let's talk about the politics of a governor, because I feel <laughs> you, more than anyone, would understand what, if any, lane exists for Mike Pence. How does he make this work? How does he become a realistic candidate for a Republican presidential nomination in a year like 2024? I think what he's trying to do is find the lane where I agree with Trump's policies, but his character has to be challenged. I, I know somebody else that tried to find that lane, right? A he, lot of people are going to be trying to find that lane, but... Yeah. Yeah. One thing you can say about Mike Pence, and I knew him, we were elected at the same time as governor, is he is a very straight guy. Yeah. I mean, he's straight arrowed. He, he doesn't just talk the game. That's the way he lives his life. So it'd be tough to challenge him in that area. Now, whether the constituency cares or not mm-hmm. is going to be another issue. I also want to say regarding Trump's visit to Iowa, the, the game of big retail rallies, I think, has ended. Mm-hmm. Trump will be the last of the big rallies, and even he can't draw big crowds like he used to. He, he'll plant his flag there, and it's mainly to talk to the media, to talk to the people of Iowa under a much more controlled environment. They'll make the room look like there's a bigger crowd. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the game. We've all played it. And uh, that's what the big change you're going to see, even in a New Hampshire I don't think you'll see as many people walk in Main Street. If they do, it's going to be for five minutes to get their six o'clock news bite, and then they're out of there to raise money, most likely for a super PAC. That's how much retail politics has been pushed out of the game in both the Republican and Democratic Party. So, Meredith, let's now shift to President Trump's role in all of this. Uh, you know, and he's heading to Iowa tonight against with this cloud of potential indictments hanging over him in all kinds of different areas, but most specifically in New York City, where a grand jury is reviewing the Stormy Daniels case. Uh, is there maybe a part, I mean, you understand the Trump camp painting Trump world as much as anybody. Is there anybody maybe thinking an indictment could be helpful to his campaign in terms of how it would rally his base? Or are the legal worries a big problem for him right now? 
I think it's it's both. I think um, the the legal worries are uh, are there. Even though Trump has publicly said that even if he's in, indicted, he's going to keep on going, keep on campaigning. That's not going to stop him. And even his allies and people on his team say that if if he is formally charged, they could see this just hardening his base and people who um, believe him when he says that he's the the victim of this uh, ongoing uh, witch hunt um, that has been dogging him for years now. Is that the problem with our politics right now, Naveen, that we would even consider that an indictment could be helpful to a a candidate for president of the United States? Well, I'll be honest. I think this is a problem on the Republican side. I I think the fact that to this day, you cannot get a Republican to come out and say they will not support him. Even Mitch McConnell, Mike Pence, Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Paul Ryan. You know, very denounced a lot of what happened around January 6th and the president still won't say, I will not support him if he's not the nominee. And I actually think that's true. I do think that if he is indicted, I think he will use it to rally his base and, and create a, an us versus them dynamic. And I think MAGA will rally around him. And I think the, the failure for Republican leadership at any point in the last several years to draw any line, including, you know, an insurrection being sufficient to say we're done with him in our party, you know, Kevin McCarthy had a moment on January 7th, and even Kevin mm-hmm. McCarthy is like, yeah, we're fine with Donald Trump as our nominee. There's a reason for this among my party, and that is, first of all, Pennsylvania and Ohio and North Carolina Senate race. Whoever <laughs> Trump supported one. got the one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they At count, least they won in the primary. It, right? They right. won in the primary, <laughs> right. but that's all they think about right, right. now. Right. Just like the left is worried about their left. The right is worried about the right in the primaries, and that's where the game's being played right now. So, so let me and also a lot of the state parties raised money off of Trump's name. Right. So you've got a lot of state party chairmen who are afraid to state the obvious that they're worried about the general mm-hmm. because they did raise a lot of grassroots money using Trump's name. I saw it firsthand. So to Naveen's point, right now you have these kind of establishment Republican mm-hmm. leaders not saying that they're going to support Trump's candidacy, but Governor. If he wins a nomination again, are they all going to fall in line again? I mean, where do you, how do you see that shaping up over the next year? Well, it's, it's going to be a te- Texas two-step dance here. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, it's going to not happen once, once the nomination's made. And Super Tuesday is going to be the big day. But if Trump is the nominee in Super Tuesday, as I said a week or two ago on Meet the Press, I think we'll have a third-party candidate. Really? I, uh, through no, lo- no labels. I, I, I've been to some of their meetings, and I think if uh, both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party majorities are dissatisfied with the choices, that this will be the year, uh, 2024, of a third-party candidate. But in the meantime, I think you're going to see a lot of maneuvering to see if they can get DeSantis in or Rick uh, or uh, Scott out of South Carolina now is, to, is probably going to announce. It's going to be some warfare on who is in second place to challenge Trump. Okay. Here's the challenge, I think, though, is that the, the reality is the Republican base is MAGA. Whether Trump is the nominee or not, right. and I think that's what this primary is going to be about. Ron DeSantis, Rick Scott, I mean, Tim Scott, if Tim they Scott, want to be yeah. the nominee, they're going to they have, have to, to cater to the MAGA base. And the nominee that emerges but will... But it's going to be an interesting okay. uh, messaging yeah. uh, signal, <laughs> because a lot of MAGA people know this deep down. And you see this with some, even Biden, with all due respect, people are going behind the scenes, God, I wish Biden would run <laughs> again. Yeah. Yeah. You're seeing the same thing even among MAGA going... Right. 
Oh, I really like him, but right. well, I really think it's time to move on. All right, we're going to have to keep it there. Terrific conversation, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Uh, and we're turning now to California, where communities are dealing with another atmospheric river event following a catastrophic three-week span of rain in the uh, end of December into January. The governor's office is preparing flood-fighting personnel to deploy in more than a dozen counties as heavy snow and rainfall today and tomorrow could bring more widespread flooding. The state already reel reeling from severe storms from over the weekend. More than 10,000 people in central and southern California around the Salinas and Pereira rivers are under evacuation warnings or orders. In fact, first responders in the California National Guard rescued more than 50 people trapped in floodwaters in Monterey County. To the north, the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab recorded over 13 inches of snow in the last 24 hours, which has brought the area to its third snowiest winter to date. And still to come, the latest action by the Biden administration to counter China's growing influence as the U.S. and its allies ink a key deal to develop a new fleet of nuclear-powered attack submarines, which President Biden has just announced in San Diego. That's next. You're watching Meet the Press Now. And welcome back. You are looking at live pictures now of President Biden along the UK, alongside the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese in San Diego. President Biden announcing a major submarine deal that would provide Australia with up to five nuclear-powered submarines under this security pact. And the U.S., U.K., and Australia will also work on developing a next-generation nuclear-powered sub, marking the first time in over 60 years that the U.S. shares some of its most sensitive technologies. Of course, this announcement comes as the U.S. and the West look to counter a more aggressive China as Beijing build up, builds up its own military and amid growing concerns over the political conflict over Taiwan. Joining me now is Carol Lee. She's outside the White House. Uh, so, Carol, the three leaders speaking now. What more do we know about this new plan? Well, we know that the president is casting this as a new strategic partnership in the region. As you just noted, Ryan, the, to, countering China is a top priority for the Biden administration, and this is a key plank of that. So this is a big yeah, yeah. deal that the Thank U.S. is that, having sir. with the with the Australians and the United Kingdom. It came at a little bit of a cost in terms of some diplomatic discord between the U.S. and France when it was announced 18 months ago. But the president is saying that this is something that they've expedited, that is a priority for the United States. And not only that, say, not only saying that it is designed to facilitate deterrence and enhance security in the Indo-Pacific, but he's also making the case in his remarks that this is something that will benefit the American people in the sense that it will bring more jobs to the United States and will sort of spur the U.S. economy as well. So the president is casting this as sort of a win-win all around. Um, but there it has been a bit of a bumpy road to get here, particularly when it comes to U.S. relations with France. So, Carol, how does this announcement today fit in with the administration's strategy towards China? Well, it's one of the ways, if you look at what the administration has tried to do, it's, it's setting up within the region, one, to just have its influence in the region more and more acutely, but also, you know, shoring up some of the U.S. bases that, that are in the region, really trying to outfit U.S. allies in the region with not only attention, but military aid and exercises and cooperation. And this is another way that, that they're trying to do that. This is not something that Australia is going to get immediately, so it's a little bit of a longer-term play, but it sends a message, and the message that 
the administration wants to send to China is that the U.S. isn't going anywhere and they have their their views of how the Indo-Pacific should be, how countries should conduct themselves in the Indo-Pacific, and they're showing it rather than just saying it in this instance. All right, Carol, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. And thank you for joining us this hour. We're back tomorrow with more Meet the Press Now. But before we go, we do have some major programming news to announce. Today, my colleague Hallie Jackson launches a second hour of live coverage on her show, Hallie Jackson Now. You can now catch it every weekday from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern. And then don't miss the premiere of Stay Tuned Now, which is a new show hosted by my colleague Gotti Schwartz. They're covering everything from the latest breaking news to advancements in tech and science shaping the world. You can catch it tonight and every weeknight at 8 p.m. Eastern. NBC News Now coverage continues with Hallie Jackson.